Lord, we, as uh, Dan already prayed, we are desperate for your help this morning as we turn to your word. Lord, we pray not only for understanding, but we pray for wisdom to be able to see you as the exalted one. Lord, that by seeing you as the exalted one, that that would fill our hearts with awe and praise and worship. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In the entertaining but very strange uh, movie, Alice in Wonderland, there's a scene early on in the movie in which Alice is chasing the white rabbit. And she finds herself in this enormous room, and in this room there's a small, tiny door. And uh, that door has a talking doorknob, if you remember the movie. The problem is that this door is really, really small. And so we notice that Alice becomes so consumed and almost so obsessed with shrinking herself down to the right size that she doesn't realize that the door is actually locked and she doesn't have the key. And she eventually discovers the key and she then kind of makes herself large again and then shrinks herself down and unlocks the door. I thought about that scene as we approach uh, 1 Samuel chapter 2 because when studying the Bible, Uh, we tend to have a similar problem as Alice. That if chasing the rabbit is like chasing the meaning of what a particular passage in the Bible uh, is talking about, then for us, we have the temptation to become so consumed with just about everything else besides the key that unlocks the understanding of that passage. That we can focus on application or what this passage means for me, and we can miss what the passage actually means and what it actually talks, what it's actually talking about. And just like so many movies where there is an important key that unlocks something that's vitally important, so too in the book of Samuel. There's a key here that unlocks the mystery of what First and Second Samuel is all about, and that key is actually found here in Hannah's prayer. Now, admittedly, this is a very strange and odd place uh, to put the key that unlocks understanding for this entire book. Because after all, isn't this just Hannah's prayer who's praising God for answering her prayer uh, for a son all of these years? Well, yes and no. On one hand, yes, she is praising God for answering her prayer. But as we're going to learn, this prayer is so much more. On the surface, when you read it, it, it sounds like a very strange prayer for a new mother uh, to pray. She talks about the, the bows of a warrior. She talks about judgment of a king, of, of death. I can guarantee that no mother in this room prayed a prayer like this when your new baby was born. But that's part of the clue that, that tells us that there's something more going on here than just her praising God for her new son. This prayer, it's It's layered with symbolism and prophecy and and surprising reversals that seem so odd and strange for this ordinary and obscure woman to proclaim. Another clue that shows us that there's something more going on here is the fact that David, King David, prays a very similar prayer at the end of 2 Samuel. Remember, in the, in the Hebrew Bible, there was no division between 1 and 2 Samuel. It was just the book of Samuel. And so that should pique our interest, knowing that uh, this, the book of Samuel is being bookended. It's being framed by two very similar prayers, Hannah's prayer and King David's prayer. I want you just to notice some of the similarities that 
uh, we're going to discover in Hannah's prayer, but comparing it to David's prayer at the end of 2 Samuel, both talk about their enemies, both talk about the horn of their strength and their salvation, both refer to God as a rock, both talk about being armed with strength, both talk about the grave and, and the humble and the faithful, both refer to God as thundering from heaven, both mention his anointed, and both refer to a king. It's very strange how similar these two prayers lined up, and there are more connections between these two prayers that tell us that the themes that are in these prayers are central to understanding the book as a whole. They frame the whole book. In fact, you could almost view Hannah's prayer as a table of contents that's going to tell us all of these events that are to come in the book of Samuel. That the themes and the illusions and the foreshadowing, they serve as a, a catalog of sorts of the various stories contained in the book of Samuel. Now, as we jump into Hannah's prayer, there's another thing that we need to know, that yes, this prayer helps uh, unlock the mystery of what 1 Samuel is all about, but what we need to understand is that this prayer is mainly about God, that God is the central character. He is the main focus in this prayer. In fact, the phrase, the Lord, shows up nine different times in these 10 verses. And there are several more references to God and his activity. And so because of that, I've just kind of framed uh, the sermon this morning around four aspects about God that we see in Hannah's prayer. Let's walk through each of these. Starting in verse 1, we notice that God is a God of deliverance. God is a God of deliverance. Something that we're going to notice Uh, throughout Hannah's prayer is that with each phrase, almost with each uh, verse, Hannah zooms out a little bit more. She starts off by kind of talking about herself and her own praise to the Lord, and then she zooms out and talks about Israel. And then she'll zoom out again and talk about all of God's people. And then she'll zoom out once more and talk about all the peoples of the earth. But notice here in verse 1, Hannah begins by using the word my three different times. She's sharing her own experience, her own uh, encounter of God delivering her from something. She mentions that her heart exalts in the Lord, or it could be translated as rejoices in the Lord. This means, this exact meaning is to have unlimited, unrestrained joy. This is a very different Hannah than chapter one. It's a very different prayer than the prayers that we noticed in chapter one. In chapter 1, Hannah's prayers, she was a a woman of distress. She was weeping bitterly. She was not eating. And yet here we notice a profound change because God has done the miraculous. God has brought life to her lifeless, barren womb. God has delivered her from something, delivered her from being troubled in spirit, from having profound sadness to now having unlimited, unrestrained joy in the Lord. The reference at the end of verse 1 to her horn is actually a reference to her strength that's in God. This was often used as imagery for the strength of an animal like a rhino. A strong horned animal would rise in triumph over their prey, devouring their prey. This is the picture that Hannah uses to describe her current condition. It's very different than what she was experiencing in chapter one, all because of God, her source of joy and strength 
is found in him. We have further imagery of a strong, victorious animal at the end of verse 2 where she says, my mouth derides my enemies. This could be literally translated as my mouth is open wide against my enemies. This is just like an animal who opens wide his, his mouth to roar in victory and to devour his prey. Hannah is, yes, boasting over her enemies, but she's also rejoicing in God. God has brought victory. God has vindicated her. The Lord saves. The Lord delivers. God has done something worth celebrating. Now, admittedly, it's at this point in the prayer, even so early on, where we, we, we wonder if Hannah is overreaching a bit. Like, like the strong language here, it, it seems like she's exaggerating a bit. Like, yes, she has this new uh, son in Samuel. Yes, because of her barrenness, this is a big deal. Every life is a miracle. But it seems like she's exaggerating with the language that she is using. But again, we're, we're starting to see Hannah pan out just a little bit. For her, she's not only speaking what's true for herself, but also what's true of God's people. Hannah's not only gloating over her enemy, which was Penina at the time, her rival who made her life miserable, but it's bigger than that. This is concerning all of God's enemies. God's enemies became Hannah's enemies because God's enemies attacked her trust in God. Remember her first prayer in chapter 1 where she used very similar language as God's people in Exodus when they were under Pharaoh's rule. They were under the Egyptian rule. They needed rescuing. Well, Hannah is doing that once again here now echoing Moses' prayer in Exodus chapter 15. Moses says, I will sing to the Lord for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has, drowned, he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God. I will praise him. My Father's God, I will exalt him. We're going to keep referencing Exodus 15 because, uh, because Hannah is borrowing Moses' language. This helps us understand the continued connection between Hannah and Israel. I've tried to emphasize that throughout the, the first chapter here, but we see this once again, that Hannah's suffering was representative of Israel's suffering. And so here in this moment, God's act of intervening deliverance and bringing life to, to Hannah's lifeless womb is foreshadowing God's salvific work in bringing life to Israel's lifeless leadership. That God, in the same way that he delivered Hannah, will deliver Israel by providing a leader. And Samuel will have an instrumental role in all of that. And so even in verse 1, we see kind of these hints at God delivering his people, God delivering Hannah. This moves us into the second aspect about God we see in this prayer is that we see God's uniqueness. These verses here in particular display the incomparability of God, if you will. There is no one like our God. It's essentially what Hannah says in verse 2. She says, there is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. What this means is that there's nothing that we can compare the Lord to. He's unparalleled. That God is completely distinct from anything or anyone. Just Think about that. Ponder that just for a moment. 
it's almost impossible for us to, to kind of understand what that, what that all means. That this unfathomable dimension of God, it's beyond our capacity. When you really stop to think about God's uniqueness, that God is, is in a category all by himself. One theologian put it this way, that in this regard of God's uniqueness, it's beyond the range of our intuitive radar. In other words, God is so unlike us that he is beyond us, that his perfection, his holiness, it does, it puts him in a category all by himself. And that's really important because as we think about God's uniqueness and, and, and how incomparable God is, like our finite minds are, are trying to grasp all that he is and all that he does, but we cannot grasp him fully. And that's a tension that we feel, maybe on a daily basis. That's a tension that you and I need to embrace. Where on one hand, it makes us really uncomfortable that we can't fully know God. That there are moments, a lot of moments uh, in our life where we think, man, I wish I just knew what God was doing. I wish I could understand this and that. And yet on the other hand, if you could know God fully, he would cease to be God. Like if your finite mind you've been around for 20, 30, 40, 80, 90 years, however old you are, and you can grasp God fully? Look, you don't want a God like that. That, that is no God. That for God to be who he is means that, he, that we cannot grasp all that he is and all that he does. Hannah continues at the end of verse 2. She says, there's no rock like our God. It's a great symbol here of, of who God is. Rock communicates security and strength and protection. But this also speaks to another aspect of God known as his immu immu immutability. Excuse me. His immutability means that God is unable to change. He's unchangeable in his nature, in his perfections, in his purposes, and in his promises. Or as the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 13.8, God is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. Again, try to wrap your mind around that. But it's also really practical. This tells us God is completely reliable. He's consistent. God's not flaky like we tend to be from time to time. God always does what he says he will do. And this kind of puts him in a category all by himself as well. Well, the uniqueness of God just continues to be put on display. Verse 3, Hannah says, Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. Hannah seems to be zooming out again, because that word, that phrase for proudly is translated as tall one, tall one. Many scholars believe that, that Hannah is beginning to prophesy a little bit here, and she's now referencing King Saul. We're going to get to know King Saul here in a few chapters, but chapter 10, verse 23, and other places, his height is emphasized. He's the tallest man in Israel. And we know that Saul fell because of his pride. So she's likely referencing him, and or she could even be referencing Goliath. Chapter 17 is, uh, we get this chapter of the giant Goliath, one of the most famous of all God's enemies. And she's saying here, she prays that there shouldn't be any more arrogance, any more haughtiness, no more prideful talk. Why? It's because the Lord 
is a God of knowledge, that he weighs or he evaluates all actions. Now, this isn't a reference to man's actions, although that's true. But in this particular verse, the actions that are being specifically talked about are God's actions. Okay, so notice what she's saying here. She's saying that that God determines his awesome deeds, his awesome actions, based on the extent of his perfect knowledge. And his knowledge here references both the, the quality and the quantity of his perfect knowledge. Okay, stay with me here. God's knowledge, it's not just that he knows all things, but what he knows is completely true and accurate. And based off his perfect knowledge, all that he does is right. You were to weigh as he weighs his actions and his deeds and why he does what he does. It's perfect because his knowledge is perfect. Again, Hannah's prayer echoes Moses' prayer from Exodus 15 in regard to God's uniqueness here. Moses prays, who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? Look, before we move on to the next section, I I just want us to pause here for a moment, just to consider, just to try to take in all that we've seen so far about God. Like this This is our God. I want you to think about that just for a moment. All of these truths that we have just talked about, this is your God. And I just want us to sit in these truths just for a moment because so often we have a temptation to move so quickly beyond these profound and robust and magnificent truth about God. And we hardly ever have time just to pause and reflect and create space for our hearts to sit in awe about the greatness of God. Man, there were several moments as I was studying this passage this week where I just sat back in my chair and I was like, wow. Like God is, is like this. <laughs> that this is, this is my God that I worship and that I follow. And I don't know what it is or why we tend to rush past deep truth so often. Because on one hand, we are created. We're hardwired for worship and for all. And yet, on the other hand, we so often rush past these these deep truths. And we're either bored or we're moving on to the next thing on our to-do list. And we never give our hearts a chance just to sit in worship of God. I don't know exactly why we do that. But I want us just to sit here for a moment and consider God and the bigness and the vastness of God. Just think about it. There is no one like our God. There's nothing to compare God to. God's holy. He's in in a category all by himself. He's completely set apart. That God's an unchanging rock. He's a reliable refuge for us. God's knowledge is perfect. It's infinite. He doesn't learn things. He just knows all things. Everything that God does is perfect. All of his ways are blameless. Just think about that. Is that amazing? Now, 
let's take it a step further. I want us to personalize those truths right now. Like, don't allow those truths to be somewhere out here, abstract and far from you, distant from your heart. No, think about those truths about God and how you have personally experienced them, how you have encountered God in this way, that God is not just the God. No, he's your God. He's not just a rock. He is your unchanging rock. He is your reliable refuge. That God doesn't just know all things. He knows everything about you. He knows all of your needs. He knows all of your burdens. That it's not just that God, everything he does, it's perfect. It's that God does everything perfectly in your life, meeting your needs in his timing and in his ways. Look, we need to understand that this isn't just this uniqueness of God and he's abstract and he's distant and he's out. No, this is who God is for his followers and for his worshipers. He's not just a unique God. He is your unique God. You see what I'm doing here? I'm, I'm refusing to just hover on the surface of God's word. And I'm trying to come in underneath the power and the authority of his word in my own heart and my life. I'm trying to remove that distance that we so often feel with God's word, especially in the Old Testament. And I'm trying to appeal to my conscience. I'm trying to, to allow my heart to, to, to receive these truths and to sink down deep into my soul and say, yes, this is who God is to me and for me. So I think what Hannah is doing here is, there's so many things, but I think these verses serve as an invitation for us. It's an invitation to come and taste and see that the Lord is this good. That the doors are wide open for us to experience God in this way. So I don't know what you came in here in this room. I don't know what your week has been like. I don't know how you normally think about God or interact with God, but just a few verses in, we're being invited to experience God in this manner, to take these truths and say, yes, this is true for me. Look, church, we, we need to move past. We need to go deeper than just thinking about truth to know. And we need to get to this place where we have truth that then leads me to worship and awe. Because that's the aim of God's word that Hannah here declares, but she also worships and she's also inviting. We see God's uniqueness. Well, the next aspect about God that we notice here in verses four through eight, and it's a very natural translation or transition from verse three, that if God is perfect in all that he does because of his knowledge, then we notice in verses four through eight, God's surprising ways. And I'm calling them surprising ways because there is a key description of his ways that Hannah highlights again and again in these verses, and it's through a series of reversals. I'm sure you noticed this as, as Todd read the text for us this morning, but you can almost view these verses as a catalog of reversals caused by God. Notice the first one in verse 4, that the bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Notice the reversal there. Well, what's interesting here is that the bows of the Philistines 
are actually responsible for King Saul's death, according to chapter 31, verse 3. And that actually led to a terrible defeat of the Israelites. But what Hannah is saying here in this prayer is that the bows of the mighty will be shattered. They will be smashed. That God demolishes human power and strength. In addition, God strengthens the feeble, the weak, the weary, the small. This makes us think of the small shepherd boy, David, who had those small stones and he's facing the giant, the, the, the giant Goliath in chapter 17. And God strengthens David for the glory of his name. You see the reversal there. From God's vantage point, he sees human strength and weakness very differently than what we do. Another reversal in verse 5, those who were full are now looking for bread and the hungry have stopped being hungry. This is seen, I think, in chapter 25, where a rich man named Nabal from Carmel, the text says, I'll uh, hold in all my, all my Carmel jokes right now, but he refuses to feed David and his men. Again, I'll refuse to go there. Nabal, though, is not spared despite having his own stomach full, and God providentially and in a great reversal provides for David and his men. Again, at the end of verse 5, another reversal, this time Hannah to herself, talking about the barren one, and now has seven children. Now, Hannah didn't have seven children, she had six, according to chapter 2, verse 21. But seven is the Hebrew number for completion or perfection. So she's saying, I had the perfect, the complete amount of children. Another reversal. Verse 6 proclaims that God is the one who has complete control over life and death. Verse 7, God's control over rich and the poor. Verse 8, the socially famous and prominent and the outcast and the lowly. That God has the power to reverse any and all situations that people are in. Now, how is God able to do this? Well, it's because the second half of verse 18 declares, for the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. What a sentence that is. Let's read it again. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. This verse is, it is announcing the complete control and sufficient power of God. That God is the creator and the owner of the world. That the creator God, he has established the world, but he also sustains the world because they belong to him. The psalmist echoes this truth in Psalm 75. It says, at the set time that I appoint, I will judge with equity. When the earth totters and all its inhabitants, it is I who keep steady its pillars. Like nothing exists independently from God. Not one blade of grass, not one star in the galaxy, not one presidential election, not even your lot in life. And everything that you're going through, everything that you're walking through, all of it is under the jurisdiction of God's sovereign hand. And because he has founded the world, it is God's right to intervene as he sees fit. Look again, let's just Take these, take, take these truths in for a moment. Uh, let's apply them, right? Don't just allow them to be abstract. But if these verses are true, and they are, if this 
is who God is, that God is a God of reversals, that he is sovereignly in control, who has all power, all knowledge, and is good, then how could we ever lose hope in him? How could we ever not trust in a God like this? And I'm not suggesting that God will do for you what he did for Hannah and provided this this boy for her because she really wanted a boy and God's going to do that in your own life. But what I am suggesting is because this is who God is, like there is nothing too hard for God, that God is a God of reversals. And again, apply that to whatever it is that you're walking through right now in life, that, that no matter how overwhelming your anxiety is, God can set you free from that. He's a God of reversals. That no matter how enslaved you are to bitterness or to anger, God can heal you from that. He's a God of reversals. That no matter how deep in you are to sexual sin, God can set you free. That no matter how far your wayward child is from the Lord, God can save He's able to save any and all. Look, no matter what state your marriage is in, if it's hanging by a thread right now, God can redeem and God can restore. No matter how insurmountable your your trial is, that mountain that you're facing, God loves to rescue the humble and those who depend upon him. He is a God of reversals. Look, even if he doesn't, even if... He doesn't. If you don't experience what Hannah experienced, what these verses are declaring is that we can still trust in him, that he knows what he is doing. His knowledge is infinite. His ways are perfect, that he gives us what we need and when we need it. And so we trust and we hope and we rest in him. That God works in surprising ways. Did for Hannah. He did for Israel time and time again. And he will for us. Look, isn't this the message of the gospel? Isn't the message of the gospel a message of reversals? When you think about it, he takes those of us who are dead in our sins, God's enemies, where we were living in darkness. We sung about these truths. And yet God takes us who are in our sin. And through what Jesus accomplished, he covers us with the righteousness of Jesus. So we're not condemned. We are accepted. We're not judged into hell for all of eternity. No, we are forgiven and we are made whole in Jesus. This is what God does. God works in surprising ways. Well, this takes us to the final section. Now, verses 9 through 10, Hannah's prayer shows us God's kingship. God's kingship. Verse 9, she says, God is able to guard his faithful ones. The wicked will be cut off in darkness. Look at verse 10. God's adversaries will be broken to pieces. He will thunder in heaven against them. Why is that the case? Well, it's because man's might will not prevail against God. God will prevail. Human might does not determine victory. It's not the successful. It's not the wealthy. It's not the prominent. It's not the powerful. The victory belongs to the Lord, and he 
gives it to who he will. And he often gives it to the weak and the lowly and the humble. That's really the whole message of 1 Samuel. But look at the second half of verse 10. Hannah prophetically prays, the Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Look, now we see Hannah who zooms all the way out. She's not only just talking about herself and Israel and all of God's people, but now she's talking about all the peoples of the earth. And what does she say? She says that God will judge all, that he will judge the ends of the earth. That makes sense based on what we've learned about God so far, that God's the creator. He's the founder of the whole earth. He's the one who's sustaining it. He's the holy one. And so God and God alone has the right to judge all. But then, but then we, we are introduced to something that may sound surprising. Look at the end here, verse 10. It says, God will give strength to his king and will exalt the horn of his anointed. Hannah talks about a king, but at this point in Israel's history, there was no king. That was the whole point of the book of Judges. You get to the last verse of Judges, and it says, there was no king in Israel, and all everyone did what was right in their own eyes. They're leaderless. They're in disarray. That that promise made to Abraham that there will be a king, that seems like a pipe dream at this point in time in Israel's history. And yet Hannah prophetically is praying that a king is coming, that that promise that God made all those years ago, that promise will be fulfilled. But Hannah here, she not only mentions a king, but she mentions that the king is the anointed. And the word anointed in the Hebrew is the word Messiah. Translated into the Greek, it's actually the word Christos, which is where we get the word Christ. So Hannah here prophetically is saying that God will strengthen his king. God will strengthen the Messiah. God will strengthen the Christ. That yes, you get glimpses of that in King David, as we'll see in a few chapters, but this ultimately and completely is fulfilled in Jesus, in King Jesus. What a prophecy by this woman. What a statement by this obscure, ordinary woman. You know, what's really interesting is that Hannah's prayer is not only echoed by David, but it's echoed by another prayer in the Bible, by Mary, the mother of Jesus in Luke chapter 1. Uh, scholars believe that, that Mary intentionally borrows language from Hannah. You see very similar themes, both rejoice in God's provision, both emphasize these great reversals, that what happened to Hannah gave rise to the kingship in Israel, what happened to Mary gave rise to Jesus to his throne. This is beautiful what we see, this Old Testament passage, where it's pointing, where it's drawing our attention to. Ultimately, it's to Jesus. It's to Jesus, the exalted one, the one who is ruling and reigning, who is sitting on his throne, who, according to Philippians 2, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord, that Jesus is is king, that he is the true and living one. What's also interesting, as we think about this idea of God will judge all, is that when Jesus comes back again, he will come not bringing mercy, but he will come bringing judgment. 
And that's a sobering reality that for those who have humbled themselves, those who have declared their great need for Jesus, those who have trusted in Jesus and Jesus alone, God will save them on that day. But for those who have not trusted in Jesus, who are living for themselves, who for them, Jesus is not their king, they are their king, they will receive judgment. And that for all of eternity, they will be cast away from the presence of the Lord in hell forever and ever. And on that day, God is either your judge or he's your savior. He is either the one that will condemn you or he is your loving king. And that is the decision that each and every one of us has to make and will make. And that is the decision that will confront us time and time again in the book of 1 Samuel. Who is your king? Who are you living for? I'm not asking if you go to church. I'm saying, who are you submitting to? Who are you surrendering your life to and giving your life all to God? Saying, God is my king. You know, a great way to answer that question, very practical way is, is just looking at the last 40 minutes. 35 and some change, actually. And as we've been looking at these truths about God, magnificent truths, what has your heart been doing all this time? Has your heart been leaping with excitement, jumping with excitement and awe and worship? Have you been saying to yourself, oh, this is my God. This is my king. This is the one who has rescued me. Or for the last 35 minutes, have you been somewhat bored? Has your mind been wandering? Have you been saying to yourself, yeah, I already know that. I already know that. I already know that. King Jesus, he is looking for true worshipers who worship him in spirit and in truth. And I'm a firm believer that when the truth about God is exalted, our hearts will always rejoice. Let us rejoice and worship our King. Let's pray together. Lord, we do give you praise and worship. There is none like you. God, human language fails to describe all that you are. Lord, we could spend the end of our, of our lives talking about how good you have been, not only to us, but all throughout human history. We thank you that you are a God of deliverance, that you are a God who saves, who offers grace and mercy to those who humble themselves. God, I pray that as we think about how big you are, how vast you are, that that would humble us and that would fill us with awe. Help us now, God, to worship you for who you are, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.